the past five years, uh, we have looked at some of the solas, but we've run out of solas. There's only five. <laughs> so what was I going to preach on this time? I decided that uh, I would preach on the subject of Reformation and the hope we have for Reformation. If you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, I want to read verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. Please stand for the honoring of God's Word. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had, be, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace... You will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from the places where I have driven you, says the Lord and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Amen. Father God, we come to you, and it is our desire that more and more we would learn how to tremble at your word, how to reverence your word. I pray, Father, that you would uh, grip our hearts with this word, transform us. You have said that you sanctify us by your word. And, Father, we desire to be sanctified. I pray that you would open up the eyes of our understanding, that you would uh, conform our wills to your will, that even our very emotions would be lining up with your word. And I pray that you would anoint me to preach your word faithfully and that uh, this congregation would be able to better do battle as a result of having heard this. Do encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. On the 19th of this month, the U.S. State Department uh, published, uh, actually it was the FBI, published its annual Crime in the United States report. Uh, how many of you guys get that every year? 
uh, about three or four of you do, uh, I try to at least speed read, skim read through some sections of it to get a little bit of a feel uh, for, uh, get a pulse of what's going on in our nation. And I have found it helpful even in terms of my prayer life. Uh, there are some encouraging developments that have happened uh, over the last two or three years, which we can praise the Lord for in terms of improvements that have happened. There are also a lot of discouraging things in, in that report. And some of the statistics can be a little bit misleading because we've got such a huge population. And so when they do their crime clock, uh, it makes it sound uh, enormous, but we do have an enormous population. Nonetheless, it's not entirely encouraging to hear that there is one larceny theft every 4.5 seconds, one burglary every 14.7 seconds in our nation, one motor vehicle theft every 25.5 seconds, one aggravated assault every 36.9 seconds, one forcible rape documented every 5.6 seconds. But I was really astonished to see the increase over the last 10 years that has been happening in terms of abductions of children. Um, there have been a huge increase, and it's probably correlated with the amount of violent pornography that you find on the web, a huge increase of abductions and killings of ch children over the past 10 years. I was looking at National Geographic, and it was just a, a heart-rending article that was in there. First sentence of that story and it was a, a story about abductions of girls throughout Europe. It said this, There are more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of transatlantic slave trade. The modern commerce in, human, uh, in humans rivals illegal drug trafficking in its global reach and in the destruction of lives. And they point out a lot of those girls are sold as sex slaves into the United States of America. Uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says about the American sex slave trade, after drug dealing, trafficking of humans is tied with arms dealing as the second largest criminal industry. Uh, perhaps some of you read several months ago, World Magazine had an article that was highlighting exactly these areas, and you look at things like that and you feel somewhat helpless. What do you do? You know, you feel powerless to do much of anything about those things, and the temptation for Christians is to just throw up their hands and give up and say there isn't anything that we can do. Well, one of the passions of this church has been that we would be used by the Lord not only to bring reformation into our own lives and reformation to the church, but in some small way, if we could make a difference in our culture, or as this text says, if we could seek the peace of the city that we are uh, that we are living in and since this is uh, reformation day i thought i would depart from our series in the book of acts and uh, try to give some encouraging words to those of you who share this passion for seeing reformation brought it is not an inevitable slide downhill towards hell like many people feel that it is i, I was uh, talking with this one pastor and he said and it's an irreversible downhill course I said, it's irreversible, huh? Who made you a prophet? <laughs> uh, it's amazing. But th this is the kind of pessimism that has grasped many people, and many times we can succumb to it and just feel like, what is the use? What is the point of trying to do anything? And I think that there's some attitudes that you find in Jeremiah in this chapter that were attitudes that gripped every one of the reformers 
uh, at the time of the Reformation. The first attitude in your outline deals with total depravity. You might think that's a pretty strange place to begin. That's the very thing I'm depressed over, is uh, all of the depravity that I have been seeing. This says that God was not surprised by total depravity, and we should not be surprised by total depravity, and yet this is the very thing that makes people throw up their hands and give up. They are discouraged when they see depraved people acting like they're depraved. And that should not be a surprise to us, should it? Uh, we ought to actually be encouraged with the doctrine of depravity because the same Bible that describes human nature in the most pessimistic language is also the Bible that describes God's grace in the most optimistic of language. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Not just more, but much more. Uh, it gives us optimism in the, in the, in the ability of Christ's kingdom to, to conquer. Now, Christ's kingdom was not in existence back in Jeremiah's time. God's kingdom was, uh, but the Christ's mediatorial kingdom was not yet, and, and still the doctrine of total depravity gave them a perspective that helped them, and I think it helped them in part because they were not then looking to man for solutions, and for methodologies and things like that. Instead, it forced them to look to the one alone who can conquer depraved hearts. It gave them a perspective that helped them uh, to overcome uh, uh, discouragement. Now, most people in the church today that bring out these pessimistic reports, I do not think really believe in total depravity. Now, if you ask them, they probably would say that they would do believe in it. But I think they really do not deep down believe in total depravity. And I say that because many of their methodologies presuppose the goodness of man. They really do. You see, if you are convinced that man has the ability to believe and to repent all on his own, and he does not need to receive that as a gift of God's grace, then you're going to be focusing on man and trying to convince this man that he needs to change. And rather than looking to the Lord God, you're going to be focusing on technique. My technique was just not good enough to convince this person to change. Uh, if you think that man has to make the first step to sanctification, to reformation, to cultural transformation, then when your efforts fail, you're going to tend to be discouraged why? Because you've been looking to man as the solution to those problems. And what we see here and what we saw in the Reformation is that the Reformers were convinced that the depravity they saw all around them was as a result of God giving them up unto a depraved mind. It was an evidence of judgment, and God's grace could at any moment change that all around. And so... Uh, they were convinced that when the church turns its heart to God and when the church has faith in God, and God alone can give the faith, so that's the reason, but when they have faith in God, nothing could stop reformation, not even the depravity of man. And so Jeremiah starts this passage by painting a rather <laughs> uh, awful picture of how hopeless things were and uh, the, one of the reasons for that is when revival and reformation broke out, which it did in an unbelievable way, you can read the book of Esther for that or listen to the Esther series, but they would give God alone the glory, beginning at verse 1. Now, these are the words 
of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then it talks about what his letter was speaking of. Because of God's judgment, this was a time of almost utter despair for some of God's people. Not only was the church corrupt, but the church had been cast out into a very corrupt and pagan land, and their children had been forced into public schools to be educated and to serve the purposes of a pagan king. All around them, it looked like nothing but despair. It looked like the triumph of humanism and the depravity of men's hearts was fully exposed. And one of the things I want to ask you is this. Is your hope put in man or is your hope put in God? If you really are convinced of total depravity, you're not going to be worried about how depraved things are in the culture around you. You're going to be realizing for God, nothing is impossible. But if you are not totally convinced of total depravity, there's going to be discouragement after discouragement that is going to beset you. If we believe God for reformation, if we are convinced that he is sufficient for these things, then depravity does not matter. In fact, depravity is proof positive that when it's God's timing, God will be able to make the, uh, all the difference in the world. So that's the first perspective change uh, that happened in all of the... Uh, people in, in the time of the Reformation believed that. Even Martin Luther believed that. In fact, he considered his most important book to be the um, book, The Bondage of the Will. He said, if you buy into this doctrine of the bondage of the will, everything else in Romanism falls apart. If you hold to the freedom of the will, then you're going to be very susceptible to the Roman Catholic arguments. And if you wonder why, read his book. It's a great book to read. Second thing that uh, Jeremiah does is to remind them that God is in total sovereign control. Now, this was an absolutely foundational teaching at the time of the Reformation as well. Martin Luther, there wasn't any of them that denied that God was sovereign over even the wills of men, over their salvation. Every reformer, without exception, held to that, and you can find that as well in the um, bondage of the will. In fact, the other reformers thought that Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, was one of the most important books to come out uh, during the Reformation. And so after dealing with the depravity of Israel, verses 1 through 3, he goes on to talk about his sovereignty, his control in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. The first step toward hope was to realize that this was not a mistake. And even today it's to realize that it was, it's God and it's God alone who really causes the church to be carried away captive to the humanism that has grabbed our culture. It is God's judgment. America's imperialism is not outside of God's control. Uh, the danger of America relinquishing control to the United uh, Nations. That's not outside of God's control. Uh, nor are the presence of national police score. The new laws giving the feds jurisdiction over 
uh, forfeitures, elimination of financial privacy, gay victories. I mean, you could go on and on and read some of the conservative things and just get so depressed until you realize, hey, God is the one who has brought all of these things. He is in total control over all of those issues. And what God was saying through Jeremiah is when the army of God gets soft, he needs to put it through some army exercises, which are never pleasant things. And it's for the good of the church that he brought them into exile. Babylon won this battle not because humanism was so strong. Babylon won this battle because God wanted the church to go through some trials to bring them into a strong position. And that's true not just on a large scale, it's also true on a personal scale. God can turn your personal defeats into victories. And I have seen God doing this over and over and over again. Uh, Chuck Colson said, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory to his glory. I hope God continues to do a work in Chuck's life because he's got a lot of theological errors. But that is so true. I've got a book of testimonies from people that call, that's called Failure, the Womb of Success. And where it says failure after failure in these people's lives where they wondered if their life was going to amount to anything. And yet God, through that humbling process, used it to exalt them. And so God can even use our defeats for his honor and for his glory. Now, you can't stop there. You can't say, okay, God's not blindsided by depravity. And he's in total control of all of life, even our mess-ups. But he doesn't care. Boy, that'd be a scary position to be in. If he could care less, what happens to you? And so under point three... I want to give you three reasons why Jeremiah was able to embrace a realistic optimism concerning God's care of what is happening. Jeremiah was going to prophesy that God would make a profound difference in that society through the church. And by the way, the church did not start in Acts. It started with Adam and Eve, right? Uh, and Christians did not start there. They were looking forward to Christ, so they were followers of Christ before Christ came. But when I throw around Christian and church, you know, in the Old Testament, it's not just being loose with language. It really is the reality in the book of Acts speaks of them as being the church. But uh, in any case, um, uh, first of all, he wants to show them in verse 5 that he wants the people of that generation to know that they're going to be around for a while. Uh, verse 5 describes his care for them individually. Build ho houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. In other words, uh, plant a garden because you're not going to be dying here in another month or two. You're going to be around to eat the fruits of that. Uh, he, he was wanting them to not give up. I don't want you to be escapists. I don't want you bailing out on culture. I don't want you giving up on what's happening out there. Instead, I want you to settle down for the long haul is what he is telling them. And one of the reasons why he could tell these people they would make a difference in their society was because most of them were believers. They were God's children. And if you doubt that, read chapter 24 sometime. It's the parable of the two baskets of figs. There was one basket of figs that was just rotten so bad no one could eat it. There was another basket of figs that was the good figs. He says the good figs are the ones that have been carried off into exile. The bad figs are the ones that have been left behind in Israel. Now, he did not call them good figs because they had done so many good things. No, 
it was because they were his children. He says specifically that he sent them into exile because they had been doing bad things. But he said he loved them enough that he was going to judge them. That's chapter 24. And here he says he loves them and he cares for them enough that he wants them to settle down and make a difference. Now, the second thing that gave them some basis for optimism was that he not only cared for them, he cared for their descendants. And this, is, this to me is very, very encouraging. They can make long-term plans. Look at verse 6. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. Now, I can see a modern Christian from at least some churches going back in a transporter. What is it called? You know, those things that take you back in time? Landing in that culture and saying, Oh, boy, things are so bad. I don't think it's a wise idea to be raising children in this kind of a situation. I'm not going to have any children. This is the thing I was told when I was growing up. Anyway, uh, Christ is going to be coming back soon anyway. So, uh, But so bad. Why would you raise children in an environment like that? And Jeremiah says the exact opposite. He says, look, you are going to be in this place for a long time. And I want you to make a difference where you are at. I want you to be making a difference. You cannot neglect society, and if you do so, you're going to be in trouble. You must seek its peace. You must be looking to the future. There is no hope for my grandchildren, the people say. And he says, no, not only is there hope, I'm insisting that you start making plans for your grandchildren. Thirdly, he gives hope for society itself. Verse 7. God tells them to take the offensive, affect the new place that they are carried to, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Now, did Babylon deserve peace? Absolutely not. It was a despicable place to be living in. They did not deserve uh, any peace. And it would have been very easy for the Israelites to give up on Babylon and think Babylon is a hopeless case when you look at it. And yet Jeremiah insists, I want you to pray for your nation. I want you to pray for your city and seek its peace because in its peace, you are going to be having your peace. Uh, you must uh, not neglect society. Now, this is such an important principle to understand, especially when we're living in a time that's increasing degeneracy in our culture. Uh, very, very important. And this is the same principle that Paul brings up in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And then he goes on to talk about God's saving purposes for these all people, for the citizens of Rome. Now, that may have seemed like such a pie-in-the-sky idealistic goal. And yet, you know what? Because the church took it seriously, before Constantine was converted, there are estimates that almost half of the population was Christian by the time of his conversion. Some people cynically say, he figured if I can't beat him, why not join him? But it wasn't genuine conversion. I'm not going to judge his heart on that. But it was incredible the, the, the change uh, that, that, that came about. And the point is that it does not matter how bad things may be, don't use that as an excuse for giving up on culture. What we need to do is look to God's Word for direction. And what has God's Word said? 
God's Word says that Christ claims every nation for himself. And so we need to be in the work, in the business of claiming these nations for him. We must seek their peace. Now, sometimes it looks like such a big project. Claiming America for King Jesus? I can't do that. So what he does is he says, okay, let's focus on your city. Can you at least focus on your neighborhood? Yeah, you can make a difference in your neighborhood. But he says, at least be looking to the city that you are living in. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper on this. If the presence of believing Jews in the time of Babylon was a basis for optimism, how much more so when we live in the period after the cross, the period of the kingdom, the period in which Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We live in the period that Isaiah prophesied that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so if his kingdom is growing in peace constantly, there's no end to the growth, certainly we can be seeking that peace for our city. We've got those promises. <clears throat> so it doesn't matter how many statistics the pessimistic Christians may want to throw at us, things are still better here in America than they were in Babylon. Babylon is a pretty perverted place to be living in. Uh, it's far better than things were under Nero. The U.S. Department of State uh, estimates that of the 800,000 to 900,000 women and children being sold as sex slaves every year, only 18,000 to 20,000 make it into the states. Now, that's a huge number still, but the forced prostitution and pedophilia in our country pales into insignificance compared to what was going on in Babylon. Yes, there are a lot of murders in America every day. From what I have read, that too pales into insignificance compared to what was going on in Babylon. And there have been some Christians who have been so frustrated, they have begun praying God's judgment upon America. They don't know what they're asking for. In fact, they're contradicting Paul who said, don't pray for judgment, pray for peace. Pray for these people that they would be, that they would be saved. And I don't think he's talking about military peace here. He's talking about salvation issues. Some of the greatest catastrophes in history have been opportunities that Christians have taken and they've said, yes, it is a judgment of God, but as they've ministered and taken advantage of that judgment, they have seen multitudes coming to Christ. Some of the greatest times of, of um, oppression, like in China, have been some of the greatest opportunities for growth in the country I grew up in, in Ethiopia. It was during times of unbelievable pressure and torture some of these people not having hardly any skin left on their bodies. And yet during those times, it was unbelievable to see the growth of the church. One of the reasons, I think, is because God purged the church of people who were carnal Christians, who really were not true Christians. And there was a power, there was a vitality in that church that was not uh, otherwise uh, otherwise present and so jeremiah here is saying yes there's an obstacle that's here but don't look at it as an obstacle look at it as an opportunity that i have set before you a uh, chuck swindoll once quipped we are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations i like that satan wants you to see the goal that Christ has for Omaha and for Nebraska and for America of a godly nation, of a godly city, he wants you to see that as impossible. Oh, don't even think about that. That's such a ridiculous goal. That's pie in the sky. Satan doesn't want you to think about that, but Jeremiah does. Uh, Paul and Silas uh, didn't moan about the fact that they were prisoners. 
and think, oh, the sky is falling, everything's going wrong. It's a matter of perspective. They delighted, they rejoiced. Why? Because they had a captive audience, right? These soldiers were chained to them. They couldn't get away and they kept cycling through and there was soldier after soldier he was witnessing to and Paul said, look, even the Praetorian Guard is coming to Christ. Even members of Caesar's household are coming to Christ. He saw it as an opportunity rather than as an obstacle. And I think... There is uh, just too much pessimistic language that's going on in the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, it may seem impossible to turn America around as a Christian nation. It may seem impossible to turn the church around. I mean, the church is in a pathetic state of affairs. But I think it must have looked even more impossible to them back then to see Babylon changed around. And yet if you listen to my series on Esther, you know that God did exactly that, one of the most remarkable reformations in all of history up to the time of Christ. Uh, just incredible. And in fact, biblical law had more impact after that uh, reformation in Persia than um, it's having on America right now. Archaeology verifies, testifies to the fact that uh, the law continued for many, many generations after that uh, within, within Persia. What I want you to do, if uh, you have uh, lost hope in America, I want you to turn with me to Daniel. And we're going to go away from this just for a little bit. But look at Daniel and we'll begin. I'm just going to give you an, a highlight bird's eye overview of this book so that you can see how just a few godly men in Babylon made such an incredible difference. Now, in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, he talks about the captivity that Jeremiah 29 talks about. And uh, even the holy articles of a temple were being taken away captive, a total defeat in battle. But what Daniel, in effect, says is just because you've lost this battle does not mean you have lost the war. Too many times we see our present defeats, and they are genuine defeats, as being a losing of the war, and we give up. And he said, no, that is not the case. In fact, in chapters 1 through 2, God brings into strategic positions of power and influence key men, men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they can uh, have some influence and power. And you know what? We can bank on the fact that any pagan society, because it's drifted away from God's strategies and God's blueprints, it's going to have problems, guaranteed. They're going to have frustrations because they're bucking up against God's way of doing things. And what we need to do is we need to be so prepared as a Christian church that there are people who are ready to stand in the gap and provide the solutions, provide the answers that the pagans are looking for, just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, did. Okay, um, they were involved there. They were not wimping out. And if you look at chapter 2, verses 47 and following, you'll see the effect that this has upon King Nebuchadnezzar during one of these crisis events. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So he was using his position to get other good Christians in, uh, something that uh, was very wise. But Daniel sat 
in the, in the gate of the king. Now remember, at this point, he's still a pagan. Nebuchadnezzar's not converted. Uh, far more pagan than America is today. So the war is by no means over. For one thing, uh, because he is not converted, he still despises God's laws. And so in chapter 3, we find that this necessitates civil disobedience on the part of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The ACLU has triumphed. The pro-family forces, you know, they've made some victories, and then they've had this huge setback. Very, very discouraging. But out of that defeat, God opens up Nebuchadnezzar's eyes outwardly, and he makes him see the value and the power of the God of Israel. Judaism becomes a protected religion, and not just a protected religion, but the protected religion. Chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. He's supporting Christianity. Now he does it kind of in a pagan way. It's like, whoa, that's tough. But that's the way pagans did it back then, right? And so he has really been impressed. Quite a statement for a person who's not yet a believer. And he definitely was not yet a believer. Uh, I don't even think he was a nominal believer outwardly. Chapter 4 indicates he still has some very arrogant opposition against the true religion at many points. He's manifesting incredible depravity. Then God, who we already saw in point 1, is not frustrated by the depravity of man, converts Nebuchadnezzar. And he can do the same today. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gives this long State of the Union address, has it published, has it sent throughout the entire empire, talks about how he was humbled before God. Uh, I just want to read the last few verses, how he ends the speech, chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. What an incredible testimony to have published in every province and every place uh, throughout, uh, throughout his uh, empire. Uh, just incredible. God's justice becomes the measure for the kingdom. The prayers called for in Jeremiah chapter 29 are, are, are answered. Their work pays off. Now, here's the problem. Not everybody agrees with Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so he's written this big decree, but his sons don't agree. In fact, when his sons come to the throne, they ditch all of this Christianity that's been uh, put into there, 
and they don't even uh, want Daniel's services, despite the fact that he's a great counselor. They don't even have him in there because Belshazzar doesn't even seem to know who Daniel is. His mother has to remind him that uh, he was a, a great and a godly man. So should Israel uh, give up uh, uh, praying and working is all lost? Should they wait for the rapture to bail them out and stop trying to influence society? And the answer is no, 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 on every count. Even though they've rejected it, Daniel continues to work. He continues to pray. He continues to seek to influence. He predicts the fall of Babylon to the Medes. Now, anytime you have a fall of an empire, it's a time of everybody's nervous. You don't know what's going to happen. And yet those are times as well that can be incredible opportunities for the gospel if we are faithful. That's what the church did as uh, catastrophe after catastrophe struck in the first, you know, 1,500 years. It was really amazing how the church stepped into the gap. And we may have America collapse. We may have a nuclear suitcase bomb go off. We, we don't know what's going to happen, but we can trust the God who does. Now, through the boldness of Daniel, God intervenes, makes these, uh, these plans backfire. Uh, Darius or Darius, whatever the right pronunciation is, depends on what part of the country you're from, probably. Uh, in chapter 6, verses 25 through 27, decrees this. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. <clears throat> How do you like that for a State of the Union address? Was it worthwhile to be working like he told them to be working in Jeremiah chapter 29? Absolutely, yes. Who would have thought that this would happen? Who would have thought? But things, as often happens, go downhill again, just like they've gone downhill in um, America. And actually, they get worse because Satan works it out in such a way that it looks like every believing Jew, actually every Jew, period, is going to be slaughtered throughout the entire empire. This is where the story of Esther comes in. And during this period, Esther was tempted to give up, and Mordecai warns her, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Well, she agrees. She asks for prayer and fasting. And she says, I will go into the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, think what the church could do if we had a church full of people that had that attitude who said, if I perish, I perish. My life is the Lord's. I am committed uh, wholeheartedly to seeing his kingdom being advanced. If we're willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, I think huge changes could be made. Pray for the church of America that people would gain that kind of an attitude. Well, you know, the end of the book of, of Esther, multitudes of Persians become Jews. They, they embrace the God of Israel. And so what happens next comes in Ezra chapter 7. We find the emperor making a decree that all of the magistrates have to be instructed by Ezra. Boy, did this upset these guys. They were not too enthusiastic about Ezra instructing them. But let me read that for you. This is part of the emperor's decree. 
and I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nephanim, or servants of this house of God. So they are given a tax exemption. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon them. Now, can you see why it is not unrealistic to be praying and working toward reformation in America? If God could bring it back then before the time of the kingdom, how much more so after the time when he's poured out the spirit upon the nations? But we can never sit back and relax, right? That's the tendency. We've had our victory. Oh, good. I'm going to sit back and relax and we'll let somebody else do the work now. There's got to be constant vigilance, constant vigilance. And uh, we need to see that the obstacles that Satan erects still can be opportunities for our personal growth as well as for the church. No defeatist language. Now, if we do have defeatist language, we're going to talk ourselves out of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if there is no faith, well, sure, some of these conspiracies that are out there that are probably way overhyped may take over, may bring us into a, a humanism that was every bit as deep as the humanism Babylon was in. But that only needs to be true if the church is asleep at the wheel and has an escapist mentality. We are all faced with a series of great opportunities, brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. And so your perspective is either going to make you give up on things or to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for him. Now, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 29. <clears throat> so far, we've seen that God is not blindsided by depravity. Secondly, we've seen God is sovereign. He's in total control. Thirdly, we've seen that where there is the presence of Christians, there is hope uh, for optimism, for action, for long-term planning. The fourth attitude that all of these reformers have had is this. They refuse to listen to the religious escapists. And you can find that in verses 8 through 9. Jeremiah connects what he is saying with that little word for. Because the religious escapists were saying the exact opposite of what Jeremiah was saying. They were saying within two years, you guys are all going to be back in Israel. Don't be taking dominion. Don't settle down. Don't be making plants because you're going to get bailed out before you know it. That's exactly what they're doing. And the false prophet that is named in chapter 28 had a secularized version of the pre-trib rapture doctrine that they were going to be taken out of all of their trouble. They didn't need to worry about being in there. Now, which of those two you think was the more popular? I mean, who wouldn't want to be bailed out rather than taking the hard work of dominion? It was far more popular doctrine. But Jeremiah warns them in verses 8 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now turn with me to chapter 28 to listen to their prophecy. Now we're going to begin at verse 2. Now keep in mind, this is a false prophet, Azur, 
who was uh, prophesying, and this is simply recording his false prophecy. Beginning at verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah goes on to say, Whoa, I wish that was true, but it ain't. It's going to be 70 years, 70 years before anybody comes back to this land. <clears throat> and I think uh, we have had the same problem today where too many Christians have been listening to all of the wrong messages about the future. We have given up on the future. We've become escapist. And we cannot base our optimism on wishful thinking. It's got to be based upon the word of a God who cannot lie. So point five says, get your vision from the future, from God's word. Verse 10, For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Now, if they were focused on the newspaper, current events, yes, they could have grown discouraged about God's plan. But God gave them a realism to be working toward. He said, I don't want you even thinking that you're going to be bailed out. I want you to be working for the long haul. I want you to be putting yourselves into positions where you can have influence. But prophecy properly understood can do the same thing for us. I was listening to a tape by a Westminster prof. He said he asked his daughter what the book of Revelation meant. And she says, oh, that's easy. Jesus wins. And uh, that's exactly right. If we realize that the outcome is in God's hand. In fact, that's how he starts his book. It's to encourage them. It was not to discourage them. It was to encourage the saints. And so we've got to gain a vision for the future from the Bible. Then in verse 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, unless the church is convinced it has a future, that it has a hope, it's not going to bother to try to advance things. What's the point? Why, you know, people don't tend to work on things that they think will be unsuccessful. It's, it's too demotivating. I read a story about a... ...horses strained and strained, and they could not pull that load. And so he took off one of the logs. They still couldn't do it. Took off another log. They still couldn't do it. He ended up taking all the logs except for one log off, and the horses still couldn't pull it. Not because they couldn't. He knew that they could, but they were so discouraged from all of their failed attempts that they were not even trying. And that's the way it is, I think, in the modern church today. Because of a faulty, dispensational, futuristic uh, philosophy that they have, it's robbed them of hope. It's robbed them of heart. It said, why should we even bother being involved? In fact, people use that expression. Why polish brass on a sinking ship? The ship is sinking. There's no point in working in in our culture and this is why i am convinced that eschatology is so critically important do not buy the line that says oh i'm a pan millennialist it'll all pan out in the end no it won't pan out unless you get your act together it's by faith that things work right and god's the one who instills that faith and yes ultimately it will work out but god doesn't want us to be passive we have got to study eschatology god has given what is it two-thirds Two-thirds of the Bible, we can make up a figure, right? 
it's a ton of the Bible that is dealing with eschatology. It is important. God wants us to be transformed by it. Now, here's the question. What can we do to encourage others in Omaha to have the same vision? Well, it's called networking, okay? We need to share these truths with everyone that we can. We need to encourage the ranks of the church that's out there. They're very discouraged. They need your ministry. They need to be encouraged. You can give them literature. You can invite them to key meetings. You can lend them books and videos. I believe that our church, that's one thing that our church can contribute. It's an eschatology of victory. There's a lot of other things I think we can contribute as well, but now is an opportunity. Now is the time to mobilize like we have never mobilized before. Well, Daniel ends this section of his letter with a call for God's people to prepare themselves in three ways. First, pray. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And I think we need to pray as we have never prayed before. And just take this privilege. James says, you have not because you ask not. Prayer is so essential. It is God's predestined means toward the predestined end. And so if we're not praying, it must be an indication that God doesn't have the predestined end, right? You're not going to have it if you don't ask for it. So get stirred up in prayer. Next, seek God with all your heart. Verse 14, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Half-hearted efforts will not do. We need to be deadly in earnest like Daniel was deadly earnest. And you know what? In the history of mankind... There has never been a group of people who has captured a nation ideologically or militarily that has done so half-heartedly. They've always made sacrifices. They've always poured their lives into what they believed uh, was important. And there are all kinds of opportunities to seek the Lord with our whole hearts, to serve Him with our whole hearts. If you want to know how you can get involved, talk to Pastor Glenn. We've got all kinds of ways that you can get involved. But if we're going to make a difference, we've got to be in deadly earnest. Next, they were to keep at these things until God fulfilled his promises. So perseverance, verse 14. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive, or cause you, it says. Now, to me, this is such an encouraging message that Jeremiah brings. And I want to make a difference like Daniel did. And if you are people who want to make a difference and you want to be Daniels in Omaha, if you're interested in devoting quality time and energy and resources to accomplishing that, talk to us. Talk to us about it. If you're interested in being a part of a plot, Everybody likes to be a part of a plot, don't they? A plot for influencing the minds of Christians and of non-Christians and, uh, you know, getting out literature and videos and tapes and books and bumper stickers and things like that. Talk to us. Now, not just curiosity seekers. We want people who are sick and tired of institutional drag and are saying, I want to work. Every week I want to work. I want to do what I can. There is hope for America if we will mobilize. Chuck Colson tells the story of Laszlo Tokes in Romania. He took over as a Reformed pastor in a church that was a mess. It was a totally dead church. The previous pastor was a communist collaborator, and uh, when he took over, it looked like a pretty hopeless situation, but he preached his heart out. He preached and preached, 
And there were people getting converted, and they were inviting other people. And before he knew it, well, it was quite a long time, actually, but eventually there was a church of 5,000 people, and this really ticked off the authorities. And so they deposed him from the ministry. Well, he kept on preaching, and so they began persecuting him, threatening him in various ways. They had a gauntlet of police officers that people had to go through to get into the church, all carrying handcuffs. And when that didn't work, they took away his ration book so he couldn't get any food. And so the only food he had was food that his parishioners would smuggle into him. And he still continued to preach. And so they said, okay, this is the day. If you are not out of the pulpit on that day, you're going to be arrested. Well, on that day, for some reason, God put it on the hearts of these people to just gather around and pray. And there were thousands of them. And then there were some of the secularists who saw all these people that were gathering around and they heard what the story was. And they came, multiplied thousands, gathered around, and what everybody thought was just one person's efforts turned into a mass movement that resulted in the overthrow of Susesco, that, that tyrant, uh, in that country. Now, most of the people who were standing there probably thought, you know, there's not much I can do. But hey, I can hold a candle. I can take a stand here. I can maybe smuggle in some food to this pastor. And they did what they could, and God did the rest. You know, we can't control history. Only God knows what the outcomes will be. But we can do uh, what we are able to do. And if you've ever wondered, what do I do when all seems lost? Jeremiah has the answer. Realize that lost battles, and maybe you've lost a whole pile of battles recently. Lost battles are not lost wars. Begin planning for victories 10 and 20 years from now. Take the obstacles that come before you as opportunities to have God's grace working through your weakness. Turn off the radio when those religious escapists, you know, are trying to take the wind out of your sails and make you discouraged. Just turn it off. Don't listen to them. Turn off the TV, which is wasting so many kingdom hours. Think of all of the ministry you could be involved in if you said, I'm not going to watch any more TV. Wow, that frees up. How many hours in a week? Well, I hope it's not a lot in this congregation, but just think of it how much you could you could say start listening to dominion tapes start reading study the optimistic eschatology of victory uh, really believe in your heart that romans 8 28 is true and mobilize god's people inside and outside the church and saying let's do something we can do something begin distributing things mobilize them I think by God's grace, we can make a difference. And it's my prayer that God would stir up the hearts of people to embrace these Reformation attitudes. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we ask your forgiveness for the times that we have lacked faith. When we have been so discouraged and the wind has been taken out of our sails so many times with the, the bad words and the opposition of others and uh, discouraging uh, theology and even just the discouraging complaining where so many people look at the glass half empty and constantly step on our ideas that we have forgive us father when we've allowed that to make us lose faith in you help us to believe that all things are possible with you and father I since you have claimed the nations and since you have commanded us to disciple the nations help us to have a burning passion that cannot be extinguished to make a difference in our neighborhoods our towns our cities in iowa and in nebraska and may you receive 
all of the honor and the praise and the glory. We long for reformation, Lord. We long to see the church of Jesus Christ brought out of the, the miserable condition that it finds itself in. And I pray if we may have a part in that, that you would uh, enable us to do so. We recognize we ourselves need revival. We need reformation. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in us both the will and to do of your good pleasure. Strengthen your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.